In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Father Mark, the, the other Father Mark, will be back next week, but uh, this week you get me. Uh, and uh, uh, Deacon Stephen and his wife are here as well, uh, and we're thankful for that. So today we have, I want to want to look at, at the saint for the day, the prophet Samuel. I'm pretty sure his icon is up there, but I forgot to look before I came here, but I'm pretty sure it may be the one right over my head right there, but it, I'd have to look more closely, maybe with the binoculars. Um, but he's but typically in an iconography plan. Some of the great prophets are on that circle or up there among the windows up in the dome. So I encourage you to look for him later. Um, he lived about the year 1200 BC. He was a Levite, uh, so of a priestly family. And he was uh, perhaps the last judge of Israel. And his name means heard by God, which is probably both an acknowledgement of his mother's prayers. Um, in Judaism, particularly then, it was considered to be a great disgrace if you weren't able to have children, if you were a woman. And, uh, and she wanted a, a child, a son, very badly. And after years of fervent prayer, uh, God hears her prayer, not that he didn't the first time, but, um, but answers this for her. And she has this child uh, and names him Samuel after this, this sense of blessing. But I also think that considering um, all the times that his prayer did amazing things for the people of, of Israel, it may also have been sort of a foretelling of his future role as well, but that's just my personal interpretation. Um, when he was very young, uh, he was dedicated to service in the temple. The picture I have of this is as a barely weaned toddler, uh, and that is quite a sense of dedication on the part of his mother at that point. Um, you know, our, I've watched parents drop their kids to go off at summer camp, you know, and they get on the bus and the kids are all like, woo, this is fun, you know, and the moms are like, oh no, woe is me, and all this crying and stuff. I see one mom out there nodding her head at me. So, um, you know, it's hard for moms to, to dedicate their children that way, but nevertheless, he did, and he grew up in the temple of God, in service to God, and while he was there, he heard God calling him and giving him a message for one of the other older people working in the temple there about, hey, you know, you need to, you know, it's better for parents to pray for their children than to nag them about stuff, okay? I, I get that, although it's hard, I know, to put that into practice sometimes. Um, but sometimes you need to bring your kids up and say, hey, you're out of line. You need to, you need to change what you're doing. And this may even be true when they're adults. Hopefully not, but, but it could happen even then. And so uh, Eli's sons were known for their wickedness and their not paying attention to their duties toward God and what have you. And Samuel warned Eli about this. Now, it's hard to take advice from younger people, I know, all right, but, um, it, but, but you know, Eli didn't listen. And this brought destruction down upon uh, Eli and his entire house. Um, so, some lessons here, you know, for y'all who are parents and godparents, don't, you know, pray for your children, but don't be afraid that when it's necessary that you, you tell them when they're not doing what they should be, uh, when they go astray. And, um, you know, another thing about Samuel is that 
at a certain point, the people of God came to him and said, you know, we'd like to have a king like the people around us have. And Samuel's like, I don't think this is blessed. I don't think this is a good idea. No, we really want a king. And on one hand, yes, a king is somebody who, in the best case, stands there before you and prays and intercedes for you at the, at the altar of God. Somebody who, when the, the evil forces come over the horizon or whatever, he's there with the army leading to keep them from uh, destroying your area and family and, and all that. So there's some benefits to being a king, but, but the people of God are supposed to be dedicated to God. Their leadership is supposed to be more priestly than kingly, although that wasn't necessarily a separate role in antiquity either. Um, but, but the people around them, all these pagans, they all had kings. And part of the reason for not having a king was to maintain a certain separate identity. Uh, and so Sam, I get the impression that Samuel resisted this kind of uh, sternly or stridently. And, and yet eventually, you know, you know, God, what do I do with these people? They won't listen to me. All right, and, and eventually God says, all right, fine, give them a king. All right, and, and so he anoints Saul and then eventually David as king. Uh, Samuel was of such stature that, that he could, you know, he could listen and, um, and, and take, take correction that way. So I guess the second lesson here is don't be afraid to be different. You know, hang across from the, the mirror or someplace in your car. Okay, uh, be willing to make the sign of the cross over, over meals at lunch and even though it may be a little weird for your coworkers. You know, be, but being a little bit different than the people around you is okay if it protects your Christian identity. But at the same time, be open to a word from God telling you to change direction if that's uh, necessary. All right, so a third point here about Samuel, it talks about him in one write-up of his life that I saw as being blameless, having a blameless life, and living to 98 years. And it's hard for me to imagine some days uh, having a blameless 98 minutes, much less 98 years. And I mean, blameless, that's sort of right up there with perfection, right? I mean, and who has that? Uh, but that is our goal, right? We're supposed to be, uh, be perfect as your Father in heaven is, is perfect, it says earlier in Matthew's Gospel. And, um, you know, just because the goal seems impossible or seems hard or, or near to impossible doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile goal. In fact, that may very well be proof that it is a worthwhile goal. Um, all right, let's shift gears a little bit here. In the reading from 1 Corinthians that we heard, Paul talks about this idea of seal of apostleship. And I want to talk about sealing and about apostleship here. Uh, if you think about a seal, uh, be it the one that we use to make the design in the prosphoro, or more commonly when people think about it, like sealing wax, so you drip some wax onto the envelope or whatever it is you're wanting to affix your seal to, and you would have your signet ring, and you'd push it down into the wax as it starts to cool, and the wax still is wax, but it's been changed by the seal. The shape of it, at least, has been changed, not, not the underlying chemistry. Okay, I get that. But, and so a seal is something that, that takes and molds something to a particular sort of character. And we're all sealed in our baptism with the chrism oil, with, the, Holy, with the, the, the grace of the Holy Spirit, right? So we've been sealed, we've been marked, we've been changed, 
we're still human, we're still what we were to start with, but in a way we're not the same. We've been, we've been changed, we've been sealed by that. Um, and then also the seal, not only does it change the thing it's, it's put on, it also attests to the genuineness of the thing. It's, it's sort of like back in the old days, instead of signing documents, people would put their seal on them. So we've been sealed by God. We're attested to that we're adopted by this seal. All right. And then apostleship. You know, an apostle is somebody who's sent out to preach. And, um, and so in that sense, it's, it's a, an act of service. And so I would wonder if, if in your life, if you were to look at how life is, does the church bring you some spiritual benefits? I hope the answer to that is yes. And if it has, then are you serving the church? Are you making it so that we can send people out or have people here to preach the gospel, to, uh, to let people know that, that there is forgiveness, another theme coming up, uh, or, or are we not? I mean, if you look at... Um, if you look at the Old Testament, there's a scene where uh, Abraham, I think it's Abraham, goes out to meet Melchizedek and, uh, and gives him 10% of the spoils of battle, right? He just won a great victory. So the Old Testament giving paradigm is 10% of gross income. And in the New Testament, it's 100% of gross income. And I don't think 100% of gross income works without truly apostolic leadership and that level of commitment that's probably impossible today. But I think that if we were to think about all of our decisions financially as part of our spiritual life, and clearly the money is, comes up in the Bible from time to time, including the, the gospel I'm gonna talk about next, you know, money is a spiritual matter. And some people I know would have a very difficult time giving 10% and still being able to make rent. Right? But on the other hand, there are probably some people, maybe even in this community, that could live on 10% and give 90%. And if they did, it would probably help with their humility. So the, the, the right figure is probably somewhere on that spectrum. You know, you, you'll, you need to pray about that and think about that. But as you do, consider the kinds of ministries that we could support both in and around DFW and internationally if we had that kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, intensity uh, of intention with this. So pray about it and, and act accordingly. All right, looking at the gospel, we see this scene where the master's settling accounts and um, one of the first lessons that jumps out at this is that being in debt is dangerous. It may have some good business reasons, uh, but man, it can really constrain what you want to do sometimes. Um, it would be much better if we were to give some money to God, uh, save some for emergencies, put some into investments, and then live on the rest of it. Um, the master that we see here is God, uh, and he's owed 10,000 talents. Now, I'm enough of a science uh, kind of nerd that once I tried to figure out how much money is that really? 
and it's kind of hopeless to try and figure that out because you know, people purchase different things. I didn't have cell phones back then. Uh, my grandfather would have laughed at the idea of buying bottled water. Okay, so it's, it's hard to back calculate this kind of stuff. But nevertheless, if, if talents are like a kilo of gold, and you're talking about a truckload of gold, you know, it starts to be national debt kind of money. I mean, there's a lot of zeros there, uh, whatever the, the actual number is. Uh, like I said, it's really hard to come up with, with that. And you know, I don't want to belabor that point, um, but, but it shows, if, if you think of these, the amount that's owed as what we would have to pay back to God for our sins, the point here is it's so much as it's impossible. Okay? It's not about a particular number that we can assign. It's a little easier to assign a number to the other pile of money, the uh, 100 denarii. That's probably 100 roughly one ounce silver coins, or maybe it's 100 uh, days worth of wages for a relatively unskilled laborer. It's not insignificant, uh, not at all, but it's not the same vast, huge, I can't even imagine what it is kind of debt that's owed uh, by the guy who owes 10,000 talents. And yet, when you look at that, you know, the 10,000 talents, Jesus has already paid that back, right? He went to the cross. He didn't owe anybody anything uh, at that point. Uh, and, and so he's paid that debt, if you will, uh, and, and we've been forgiven by him. And so, so what do we do? Do we act in, in you know, a similar kind of fashion? Do we follow his example? Uh, and, and, you know, and why is it so hard for us to follow this example? You know, Jesus went to the cross undeservedly. We're just asked to swallow some pride and forgive the person who's offended us. I mean, that's kind of disproportionate, right? Uh, you know, and then when we consider the gospel talks about being handed over to torturers, if we don't, I, I, I mean, the, the torturers, I mean, in this particular instance, the torturers are probably the demons, and we're probably talking about eternity, right? So um, that's the penalty for unforgiveness. Um, so, you know, and again, about these torturers, if you look at the lives of the saints, there are stories in there that it, about the kinds of tortures the saints went through that if I think if I read them in here, the paint would peel off the walls. I mean, it's just scary stuff. Um, so anyway, I think you get the point I have there that you need to forgive people. And also I wanted to point out in this that you know, each and every one of us is unique. We're children of God, uh, we're unrepeatable, um, you know, by virtue of baptism, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and this is a position potentially more glorious than that of the angels. And, um, and so maybe we can have a little pride in that in a sense, but, but if we have all that, and yet we throw it all away if we don't forgive the people who've offended us. Uh, we don't want to be uh, like Eli's sons, uh, you know, on some you know, lack of repentance and then be destroyed over it. Uh, we don't want to be rejecting that adoption by God. All right, I try not to be a, uh, you know, hellfire and brimstone sort of priest. I'm sort of skating dangerously close to that this morning. Um, 
can I be a little bit more of a science nerd for just a second? Okay, so brimstone, uh, you know, that's, that's sulfur. Burning sulfur, it comes out a really nice sort of blue-purple color. I did this in a fume hood once. Okay, but the reason I did it in a fume hood is because when you burn sulfur, you make sulfuric acid, which would eat your lungs. And so just the whole idea of brimstone and burning sulfur, anyway. It's a picture of hell, in a way. Um, all right, so... Um, you know, I don't think any of us want to pay every penny of what we owe to some immortal, immortal demonic uh, tortures. So what do we do to avoid this fate? I think it's pretty clear in the gospel here that the thing that we need to do here is to forgive the people who've offended us. And, and again, I know it can be difficult, but strive for it. Follow Christ's example in this. Uh, strive to be like Samuel and be blameless, even if you have to start over again and again. And, you know, that's, that's part of why we have confession, is that we know that most of us can't live without uh, sins and offenses, and so there's a mechanism for forgiveness for those. Uh, be generous in your support to God's work in the world. Forgive others, uh, maybe more than they forgive you if need be. Forgive and be forgiven and enter the kingdom of God. Amen.